Please listen carefully. Carefully. Welcome back to Utterly Moderate, the official podcast of the Connors Forum for a Healthy Democracy. Visit us at connorsforum.org. While you're there, in just one click, you can instantly subscribe and get our podcasts and newsletters full of reliable, nonpartisan information sent directly to you. Learn about things like the causes of inflation, climate change, healthcare, inequality, the health of American democracy, and much more with no political angle or agenda. That's connorsforum.org. It takes less than 15 seconds to subscribe. On today's show, we are joined by longtime MIT professor and now University of Arizona scholar Noam Chomsky, well-known around the world for both his academic work as a linguist as well as his career as a social commentator and activist. He is the author of numerous books, and you can find his talks and interviews all over the internet. Today, he's joining us to discuss a variety of topics, including the health of American democracy, free speech on university campuses, American poverty, his proudest career accomplishments, and much more. Ladies and gentlemen, I am very pleased to welcome Noam Chomsky to the Utterly Moderate podcast. Noam, I want to begin with a question about free speech on campus. Now, for our listeners, if you have not read the Harper's Letter, we've linked to it in the show description, so you can go read it for yourself if you would like, and I'm going to quote from it at length here. Noam, you signed the Harper's Letter, which argued that, quote, the free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society, is daily becoming more constricted. While we have come to expect this on the radical right, Censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture. An intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. It is now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. Editors are fired for running controversial pieces. Books are withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity. Journalists are barred from writing on certain topics. Professors are investigated for quoting works of literature in class. A researcher is fired for circulating a peer-reviewed academic study. And the heads of organizations are ousted for what are sometimes just clumsy mistakes. Whatever the arguments around each particular incident, the result has been to steadily narrow the boundaries of what can be said without the threat of reprisal. We are already paying the price in greater risk aversion among writers, artists, and journalists who fear for their livelihoods if they depart from the consensus or even lack sufficient zeal in agreement, end quote. So I apologize for quoting that at such length, but there have been numerous stories of university professors around the country who admit censoring themselves in the classroom, in their research, in their personal lives, for fear of professional repercussions, particularly on matters of race, gender, and sexual orientation. Now, in many of these instances, professors discussing or researching issues in good faith have had people claim that they are causing harm, trauma, you know, violence to social groups. 
Just to give an example, I think there's a good faith argument to be had about educational achievement gaps, if and why they exist, how they should be measured, etc. But there are a number of scholars who will argue that even suggesting that an achievement gap exists is in fact itself racist. In your opinion, where is this line between arguing in good faith on either side of a controversial issue and actually causing harm? I don't think there's an algorithm to answer the question. So if uh, I was in a college classroom where a professor was talking about how the uh, have too much power in the United States, I think they would cross the line. On the other hand, if the uh, professor said that uh, Jews happen to be a privileged minority and uh, gave evidence about it, I'd say, okay, it's fine. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a little bit insulting, but it's uh, reasonable. But there's no algorithm to say when it, to do it. My own feeling is that the, there has been a kind of hypersensitivity, which is overdoing it in general. Noam, something that is very concerning to me is the way in which partisan media outlets on television and the internet unleash just a fire hose of misinformation and disinformation every single day. I know many, many Americans who only consume partisan media and nothing else. That's their only source of information. And they sincerely believe that it is legitimate journalism, that they are getting credible, high-quality information. So when somebody like Tucker Carlson, for instance, claims on his show numerous times that unauthorized immigrants commit a disproportionately high number of crimes, people who watch Fox as their only source of information and believe it's legitimate journalism, they think they're getting credible information, high-quality information, despite the fact that the weight of the evidence suggests the opposite of what Carlson claims is actually true. Now, this problem is not going away. If anything, it's intensifying And I don't personally believe that any amount of flooding the zone with good information is going to stop it. But I also know that many people disagree with me. So in your opinion, should we regulate media outlets to at least ban them from spreading outright lies? No, I don't think that the media ought to ban lies. It's not up to them. They should report what people say. They should permit free expression of opinion. But if the media start banning lies, their or whoever is their censor is going to be determining truth. And I don't want them to have that power. Yeah, I understand. I know a lot of people don't hold my view on that. Uh, Relatedly, what do you make of the rise of so many conspiracy theories in American culture today? I think we can trace the popularity of the conspiracy theories to uh, a kind of uh, collapse of the social order. People just don't trust anything. They uh, have been subjected for many years, 40 years, to a major attack on the society, which has uh, undermined the social order in many ways left people um, angry, resentful, not knowing where to turn, 
nobody's speaking for their interests and uh, distrustful of everything they hear. The way to overcome that is to build a sane, functioning society. Just putting information in is not going to help. Let's talk a bit about the challenges that are facing American democracy. As Yasha Monk says, the warning signs of serious decline for many democracies worldwide are flashing red. Robert Kagan notes that the U.S. may be on the verge of the greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War, and quite possibly the suspension of American democracy as we have known it. I think it's pretty clear at this point we had an attempted coup. Federal, state, and local elected representatives and election officials were pressured and threatened in order to try to overturn the 2020 presidential election. The vice president and members of Congress were pressured to stop and or alter the electoral count. Fraudulent electoral college electors were sent to the National Archives. The Department of Justice was nearly completely corrupted in order to give the appearance of credibility to the big lie. Some state legislatures would like to be able to choose the president regardless of how the voters in their states cast their ballots. And partisan media outlets routinely spread misinformation and disinformation to encourage and legitimize all of this. As Michael Gerson laments, recent developments in the U.S. are revealing the frightening fragility of the American experiment. And Jonathan Last warns, America faces an authoritarian peril. So Noam, I'll ask you, do you think that American democracy is going to survive this authoritarian threat? I think it's very questionable. The, uh, we may learn a little more in a couple of months. Uh, if uh, the Republican Party has made it very clear and explicit that they intend to uh, undermine the democratic system and uh, set up mechanisms by which they, as a minority party, will be able to have uh, long-term, maybe permanent ascendancy, whatever voters want. Uh, they'll have a chance to advance this agenda in November. The Supreme Court, the, which is now ultra-reactionary, uh, they are about to, they have said that they will hear a case, crucial case, in the next term, which in effect allows state legislators to overturn election results. Well, if that goes in, there's another nail in the coffin of uh, democracy. And there are other steps being taken in the Republican states to limit voting, uh, make sure that the wrong people don't vote, to uh, expand the structural imbalance, which is serious, which provides extra voting power to the, uh, the Republican constituency, the rural conservative constituency. That's hard to overcome at best. Um, the Republicans have lost virtually every election, but they uh, often win the, uh, uh, the, the power that's built into the structure of the system. That has to be changed in deeper ways. But they want to expand those possibilities, both through the judiciary. Uh, McConnell 
particularly has understood for years that uh, if the far right can staff the federal judiciary, they'll have a kind of a lock on power for a long time. They've been doing it systematically from bottom to top. That's, again, going to be hard to overcome. But the only real answer is if a mass-based political organization develops, which will uh, seriously commit itself to the needs and interests of the general population, working population, middle class, and so on. We don't have such a party now. You go back to the 1930s, my childhood, so I remember it pretty well. Uh, The New Deal was inspiring lots of hope and expectations for a better future among working people. My family, for example, first generation uh, immigrants, working people in New York. Uh, There were plenty of conspiracy theories. Uh, In my own neighborhood as a child, Irish Catholic, German neighborhood, the kids were hearing, the kids on the street were hearing things in the Jesuit school that were appalling about Jews and so on. Uh, there was Father, uh, Father Coughlin was getting huge audiences about how Jews are running the world, destroying the Christians race and so on. There were many conspiracy theories, but uh, it was overcome for a great part of the population by constructive policies that they could commit themselves to and were, in fact, uh, laying the basis for a much better future. So the conspiracy theories were there, rampant, but not dominant, because there was an alternative. You know, for our listeners, I think it's useful to think about the coup in this way. And I'm not the only one who's made this argument. Many people have made this argument. But um, for our listeners, just think about it this way. Imagine yourself as a private citizen, okay? What would happen? Just think about this for a moment. What would happen if you asked your elected representatives and election officials to overturn a federal election? What would happen to you if you threatened them in order to get them to do that? Or what would happen to you, a private citizen, if you coordinated slates of fraudulent electoral college electors to be sent to the National Archives to be sent to Congress? Now, I think the answer is pretty clear that me, Lauren Seppert, as a private citizen, I would be in a world of trouble if I did those things. So I'm not really sure why we are debating if a president or major political figure should be allowed to do those things. Well, we'll soon have an answer to that. I mean, the Supreme Court may, in fact, authorize it, uh, according to the arcane theory of uh, legislative control that they are now considering, which was never taken seriously before, although it is has a constitutional basis. 
uh, the state legislatures can do pick the electors. And there's nothing in the Constitution that says they can't pick them the way they want. It's always been taken for granted in American history that that won't be done. But uh, if you read the text of the Constitution, it doesn't say that. And I'm sure uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch will be able to point out, or I could read the brief for them, that uh, the text of the Constitution makes it perfectly legitimate that for the state legislatures, which mostly Republican run, to pick the electors they want. Uh, the uh, framers didn't consider that possibility. They, and we shouldn't recognize that functioning democracy is based on trust, not just on the word of law. Take Britain. The British Constitution is about a dozen words long. Uh, it's just assumed that you live up to the norms. And in fact, when those were violated just a couple of years ago for the first time by Boris Johnson, prime minister, who prorogued closed parliament so that he could ram through his version of Brexit, there was a huge uproar in England about how the whole constitutional system based on trust is being overthrown by an autocrat. But uh, basically the system runs on trust. And the same is true of our system. The, uh, the, the detailed wording of the laws gives a kind of a vague a general framework. But in a sane society, uh, you understand it to be just that, a framework. It should be a, what's called a living constitution, where you use understanding of the uh, society, the global situation, and so on, to determine what the framers might have meant in current circumstances. As uh, Justice Jackson pointed out, the the versions of early versions of what's now called originalism were like uh, uh, Joseph reading um, Pharaoh's dreams. And you can find anything you want. Do you believe that former President Trump should be indicted? On technical legal grounds, definitely. Would it be a wise idea? It's another question. In the current state of the country, it could lead to a violent, destructive civil war. The large part of the population, they think their country is being stolen from them. Uh, take a look at the figures, it's pretty shocking. Uh, about half of Republicans think that the Democrats are uh, run by a gang of sex perverts who are grooming children for sexual slavery. A large percentage of Republicans, probably a large majority, think that uh, their uh, society is being taken away by what they call the Great Replacement, by Democrats who are consciously bringing non-whites uh, 
criminals, others into the country to overthrow the country. Well, we don't have to talk about the sanity of the beliefs. They're beyond insane, but they're held. And if you indict Trump, it's going to be an opening for these groups, which are heavily armed, have militias, to say, okay, we'll take matters into our own hand to save our country. Do we want that? Put yourself in Merrick Garland's shoes. Would you do it if you were him? Would you indict the former president? Well, if I were the Justice Department, I would find a way to say he's guilty but will not be prosecuted. Some formula you can devise for that. I wanted to get your thoughts about whether American society is pulling apart. Barbara F. Walter, who's a political scientist at the University of California, San Diego, she recently sat down for an interview with the Washington Post, and she explained the risk factors associated with civil wars cross-nationally and whether the U.S. is at risk in the coming years, and she says we are. She cited anocracy when a country becomes a hybrid of democracy and autocracy, and identity politics as the two biggest predictors. And we certainly have identity politics, and we are becoming more authoritarian. And I wonder if we are in the middle of a cold civil war at the very least. What I mean by this is different groups of people have different standards of evidence for truth claims, different sources of news, information. We curate our social networks in favor of certain perspectives. We live in different ideological silos. We even sort ourselves geographically. And I wonder if we are pulling apart, if not for good, then at least for many decades. What are your thoughts on that? We're certainly pulling up, pulling apart as a society. It's often called uh, dysfunction, uh, implying that both that there are two parties and they're both uh, going so far to the extreme that they can't cooperate. That's not actually correct. There are two parties. They remain as they have been for years, two factions of our one-party state. We've always had a one-party state, the business party, overwhelmingly influenced by private capital. It remains the case that the political system is overwhelmingly in the hands of uh, concentrated private power that's extended considerably in the last 40 years. So looking at the public current situation, we have two parties. One of them has just totally gone off the rails. Republican Party stopped being a normal political party years ago. Uh, two political scientists at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, Thomas Mann, Norman Ornstein, about 10 years ago, described the modern Republican Party as a radical insurgency that's abandoned parliamentary politics. It's gotten worse since then. The Democrats remain managed by a centrist party, the Clintonite Obama party managers. There is a popular-based faction, Sanders faction. His positions, when you think about them, are what in Europe 
could be regarded as maybe moderate center-left. It's, uh, in fact, one of the editors of the London Financial Times sort of half-jokingly said that if uh, Sanders was in Germany, he could be running on the Christian Democrat conservative program. And if you look at his policies, you can see why. He's calling for universal health care, taken for granted everywhere, free higher education all over the place, uh, maternal leave, every country except the United States. I mean, it's, uh, you know, these are mild social democratic programs accepted virtually everywhere. Uh, well, those are the two parties. So saying that uh, there's a bipartisan split is pretty misleading. There's a centrist party with a social democratic constituency, partial constituency, and there's a far right party that's just gone off the rails. Actually, we saw a pretty clear illustration of it couple of weeks ago in uh, Hungary, there was a meeting in Hungary, the famous illiberal democracy, where democracy has been crushed, uh, parties are under control, media are under control, free institutions can't function. Uh, there was a meeting there of the far right uh, parties and groups in Europe. Uh, the star of the meeting was the Conservative Political Action Conference. That's the core of the Republican Party. Uh, Trump made a speech uh, lauding the great achievements of uh, uh, Viktor Orban in smashing democracy, imposing a racist uh, Christian state. Uh, Tucker Carlson, leading TV figure, was just lavish in his all of the enormous achievements. That's the Republican Party. Uh, Orban is their natural ally. And uh, the uh, it's kind of, when you look around the world, it's pretty funny. It would be funny if it wasn't so serious. What do you think about going to the popular vote to decide presidential elections? I say that because when you look at the coup efforts, so much of it was focused on the Electoral College. And I wonder if we just went to a popular vote, if you could cut out a lot of that chicanery. In a democracy, the popular vote would determine outcomes by definition. That's only the bare beginning of democracy. That's representative democracy. There's also participatory democracy, something quite different. Uh, we don't have it. But in a really functioning democracy, what we call political parties would not be just uh, candidate-producing machines. They would be participatory parties. And take uh, what we call a primary. Look at what happens in a primary. Uh, you're in a town in Iowa, New Hampshire, somewhere. A couple of people come into town to say, vote for me, here's what I'm going to do for you. And uh, you listen to the candidate and you decide whether to vote for them. 
Now, let's imagine a democracy. Somebody would come to town, say, I'd like to know what you think. Tell me what your plans are, what your hopes are, what kind of policies you would like, and I'll see if I can somehow represent you. Maybe it would be somebody from the town. That would be a democracy. There's an even further kind where you have democratic control of all institutions. That means, crucially, the economic institutions. So instead of going to work for eight hours a day and following what the boss orders, you participate in the management. That's democracy. So we have a long way to go to come anywhere near a real democracy. But in the very limited form of democracy that we have, popular vote should decide democratic elections. But we should also recognize how narrowly constrained our concept of democracy is. Noam, as you know, in any given year, the poverty rate in the U.S. will be much higher than it ends up being, if not for a variety of government programs. So, you know, you think of things like unemployment insurance or Social Security, the earned income tax credit, SNAP, you know, commonly referred to as food stamps, etc. But the Urban Institute estimates that poverty hit a historic low in 2021 due to the combination of these traditional government assistance programs and pandemic-related assistance programs like stimulus checks and child tax credits. Now, we won't know if these estimates are accurate until later this year when the U.S. Census releases their numbers, but we assume they're pretty close. And in fact, if you want to read about this, go to connorsforum.org. That's connorsforum.org. In one click, you can subscribe to our newsletter, and we have a big, long analysis of this there. It's really great. But Noam, I was wondering if you could reflect on this and your thoughts on its implications. What that shows is that sensible government policies can create a more just, uh, decent society. We learned that in the New Deal days, my childhood. In fact, go back to then, it's very striking. Think what was happening in the 30s. Uh, the global economic system was collapsing, major crisis. Uh, depression was much worse than anything we've suffered lately. Europe descended into fascism. The United States was a beacon of hope. It was a militant labor movement, which had revitalized sympathetic administration, uh, initiated social democratic measures, which then were expanded after the Second World War in Europe as well. That was the 30s. Uh, the New Deal coalition here held through the 1950s and 60s. You go back to Dwight Eisenhower. He held that anyone who questions New Deal policies doesn't belong in our political system. Anyone who challenges in any way the right of working people to organize we don't have anything to do with them in our system. By now, he sounds way to the left of Bernie Sanders. Well, things changed in later years. But uh, uh, the uh, policies, the Biden policies in response to the pandemic, revived that understanding. 
Before I let you go, Noam, I got to ask you, you've had multiple careers. You've had one as a linguist, one as a social commentator, one as an activist, and I'm sure a number of others that I'm leaving out. But when you look back over the course of your career at this point, what do you consider your proudest achievements? When I look back uh, in all the areas, there are achievements, there are failures. I don't feel particularly proud where there are achievements. There are joint achievements, plenty of cooperation with others. Uh, my main reflection is let's find out how to do it better. Professor Chomsky, I am very grateful to have had yet another opportunity to sit down with you today. I have many people on this program who are progressive like yourself. I have many people who are politically conservative. And all I care about, whether people are left of center or right of center, is that we discuss the issues in good faith, using the facts as best as we understand them. And I think you do a great job of that. I love being able to catch up with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join the program today. Pleased to be with you, as always. Wish I had better news. <laughs> Me too. Thanks, Noam. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again Take a liking to you.